It's rare that something has the potential to help both our bodies and the planet at the same time. That's why I'm so excited to tell you about Oobly and sweet proteins. Did you know that protein has a sweet tooth? That's right. There are a handful of plants that grow near the equator that make fruit that produce sweet-tasting plant protein that's not sugar. These are called sweet proteins. Sweet proteins are amazing tricksters and taste absolutely delicious. But better yet, they're digested just like any other dietary protein. That means they have no impact on blood sugar or the gut microbiome. Oobly uses sweet proteins to make incredible plant-based, low-sugar, sweet iced teas that are craft-brewed with clean, fresh ingredients and zero artificial sweeteners. No stevia, no sugar alcohols. With only 7 grams of sugar in an entire 16-ounce can, and that includes the fruit, you can have your sweet and sip it too. Oobly's sweet teas come in three delicious flavors, lemon, peach, and mango yuzu. Get 20% off your first order with the promo code GENIUS at oobly.com. G-E-N-I-U-S. That's the promo code at oobly.com. O-O-B-L-I dot com. Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I have Rob Davis. He's from Fifth World Farm and Verge Permaculture. Uh, we're going to talk about becoming an eco entrepreneur and a regenerative business. I'm not sure what that means and growing all year round. So Rob, thanks for coming. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. If you would tell me a bit about your background and what led you to have an interest in, you know, in farming and permaculture. Yeah, sure. So about 14 years ago, my wife and I left the petroleum uh, industry. We were both mechanical engineers working in the oil and gas industry as facilities engineers. So we were the, the folks that, uh, went out and brought pipelines to facilities, uh, basically oil and gas, depending upon what was produced at the well. And uh, I was getting ready to cut down a massive swath of forest. I think I've always been a bit of an environmentalist at heart and really didn't want to do it. But being pragmatic and kind of understanding the importance of energy, um, because I was a consumer of it and I spent my university career understanding the consequences of the first, second, and third law of thermodynamics. You know, I I couldn't really criticize the very industry that I was supporting as a consumer. And it's funny how serendipity strikes just at the right moment. I ended up getting an email from a friend, and it had a four-minute video in it called Greening the Desert. And that video fundamentally changed my life forever. Is that the ones from India? No, those are new ones that are coming out now by a colleague of mine, Andrew Millison. Um, this was, yeah, yeah. This was, I don't mean ahead. to jump into your story, but they were very, very inspiring. You know, the ones that Millison did, but good. Yeah, they are very inspiring. And it's incredible what you can do when you understand how ecosystems function. So, but this video was, was about four minutes long and it uh, was so inspiring. It described how a gentleman named Jeff Lawton took a meaningless piece of of Earth in the De- Dead Sea Valley, the lowest place on Earth, hyper-arid, hyper-saline soils, and using some simple water harvesting techniques and a solid understanding of plant ecology, 
he was able to turn a meaningless piece of desert into a self-regenerating ecosystem that supplied food year round. And I said, my gosh, that is what I want to do for the rest of my life. I don't want to maintain status quo. I recognize we need fossil fuel. Fossil fuel is an amazing resource, but I want to be part of the new paradigm. Now, around the same time, I started auditing some ecological design courses at the University of Calgary, and I stumbled upon a documentary called The End of Suburbia, and that cascaded into several other documentaries along the same line. And I started understanding how close we were to the fossil fuel cliff. And some people believe that we just passed peak oil in 2018. Some people believe it happened a little while ago. It doesn't really matter when it occurs because the fossil fuel era that we exist within is basically ubiquitous with GDP. It's been proven now that fossil fuel and GDP are 99% correlated. And so when we come over that cliff, there's no going back. And a recent podcast, I'll just finish this energy point and then I'll, I'll let you chime in there. But a recent podcast by Dr. Nate Hagens and Dr. Simon Michaud, who is the head of the Finnish Geologic Survey, has just do, finished doing a report which basically details out that it's pretty much impossible to replace fossil fuels with renewables because there's just literally not enough materials on planet Earth to do it. And oh, so, so you need uh, fossil fuels to make the trucks mine the stuff, you know, for batteries, for solar and wind and you know, it's, it, it just doesn't come from nothing. I mean, there's a lot of fossil fuels that are needed to even produce this. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the theory was, and, and the theory that's kind of being touted within the, the renewable energy narrative right now, is that the energy returned on energy invested into solar and wind is around six to one. So the, the theory is, is that as long as you're getting a positive output, then eventually you can wean yourself off of fossil fuels. The current global average for fossil fuels right now is about 20 out for one in. And just to put that into perspective, when we started drilling for, for fossil fuels over 100 years ago, some of the wells in Saudi Arabia were putting out close to 20,000 units of, of energy for every unit that we put into it. So we're, we're rapidly heading down a cliff in terms of EROEI, energy return on energy invested. And the theory around you know, renewables being positive was a good one, and it still is. One quick question here. Why just oil? What about natural gas and coal and nuclear? I mean, those all contribute to energy. So why is Absol it just oil versus renewables as they're, as they're labeled? Absolutely. Well, natural gas is an interesting one. We'll go through each one individually. Natural gas has a completely different uh, decline curve than oil. So oil tends to follow more of a bell curve. So it's a little bit more predictable. Natural gas tends to be more hyperbolic, so it comes on really fast and it goes off really fast. And so in order to stay ahead of the natural gas curve, you have to have a really strong drilling program. But it also suffers from the same ERO, EROEI. So it's hard to say exactly when we're going to pass peak natural gas, but um, you know we're clearly seeing some of the issues around natural gas in Europe right now and what happens to an industrial society when, when the gas kind of goes off, uh, industries shut down. So natural gas is going to suffer from similar but slightly different consequences to peaking as oil will. What's really interesting about this whole growth economy that we exist within right now, there was a, an astrophysicist I was listening to the other day, and I can, I can send you the link of the podcast if you're interested to put it in the show notes, but uh, his name is, uh, um, I don't have his name on the top of my head right now. 
And he basically said that if we continue to grow at 3% per year uh, in energy consumption, remembering that energy and GDP are basically 99% correlated, within 400 years, we would need a Dyson sphere around the sun. <clears throat> and so we don't know how to build that. And if even if we did, uh, and for those who don't know what a Dyson sphere is, a Dyson sphere is a theoretical kind of science fiction concept where you essentially encapsulate the sun in, we'll call them solar panels, to capture all of its energy to be put to productive use for society. So assuming that we could build this thing, which we can the solar system itself doesn't even have enough materials to build a Dyson sphere around the sun. So he acknowledges in this podcast that this is a completely ridiculous kind of thought experiment. Um, but he wanted to do something ridiculous like this just to prove that we will actually have to transition to a either a, a zero growth or degrowth economy in order to continue to occupy this. He then goes a little bit further and he says, if you continue on that trajectory, assuming we could build the Dyson sphere, Within another 800 years, so 1,200 years from now, we would need all the energy in the galaxy. And so there's some really hard, and I know we were starting this podcast off on a pretty pessimistic note. There's lots of solutions behind all of this, but um, there's some hard facts that people have to acknowledge because you know every calorie of food we eat takes 20 to 30 calories of hydrocarbons. So if you put that in perspective, if you were a coyote running around hunting for your food, and you had to invest 20 to 30 of your own calories in the form of fat into hunting that food down, and you only got one calorie back, you would starve to death. So some of these people who are starting to understand the energy dynamics of our energy system are recognizing that because our food system, our transport system, our shelter systems are so interconnected with energy, if we don't sort out how to create a new paradigm around how we live on this, we're going to have a giga famine. A giga famine is defined as at least 1 billion people starving to death, and it's going to cascade throughout our entire system. Now, you asked about nuclear, you asked about hydro, you asked about wind. Nuclear is interesting. We currently only produce about one and a half nuclear power plants per year. The average time of construction is about 15 years. The average duration the plant is about 30. And so even if you went to 25 nuclear power plants per year, so you're asking an enormous amount for the for our industrial society to be able to scale from one and a half to 25, you'd run out of uranium within 70. Um, and so hydro is mostly tapped out. Uh, wind, there's enormous opportunities for wind, but it's intermittent. Same with solar. But then we get back to those mineral issues again. Where do those minerals come from to build the solar, the wind, the microhydro, and the batteries to store the energy so that you can deal with the ups and downs of those types of energy resources? We all know we should be eating less sugar, but we're constantly bombarded with drinks and snacks loaded with refined sugar or alternative sweeteners like stevia or erythritol that recent studies have shown might not be as harmless as we thought. Enter Oobly who just launched the world's first beverages to satisfy your sweet tooth with protein. Sweet proteins are nature's candy and give Oobly's brand new sweet iced teas sugar-like sweetness without the impact to your health. Get 20% off your Oobly order with the promo code GENIUS at Oobly.com and try all three delicious craft-brewed sweet iced teas, lemon, peach, and mango yuzu. That's Oobly.com, O-O-B-L-I.com, and use the code GENIUS, G-E-N-I-U-S. Oh, I was in, starting in to... regards to nuclear, I mean, there are new forms of nuclear plants. It's not all just uranium. You know, the new uh, molten salt 
and other types of reactors of different sizes and different you know designs may have a very different profile. So are you talking about like legacy designs or new designs for the 1530? Um, I mean, so, so to be to be clear, I think that we need to do all of it. I think that we need to continue because uh, when you when you look at complexity, there's always emergent characteristics. So I, I'm not suggesting that we should just, you know, halt the experiment of civilization. What I'm suggesting, though, is that we're coming up against some really hard limitations. Uh, you know, some people will point to the fact that um, we just had this breakthrough in fusion, for example. Well, they got one and a half more times, one and a half times energy out based on relative to what they put in. And so if we go back to the EROEI, we have to always compare it back to that. I think it was Tainter who wrote a book on on collapse. He basically said that complex civilizations need at least a six to one energy return on energy invested. So as a species, we're going to continue to try and find new and novel ways to generate energy. And that's very good. And I think we need to do that. But I think part of the equation that we have to come to terms with is that we have got to use energy more effectively in everything that we do. And so food is one of those pieces. Shelter is one of those pieces. And so what, what we've been doing for the last 14 years is we design off-grid homesteads for individuals that want to uh, understand how to basically create shelter, food, energy, no matter what happens, essentially. And so they're looking at ways of basically reducing demand uh, and then replacing that demand with other resources that allow them to be self-sufficient. Hmm. Um, it just seems like uh, you know traditional fuel sources are being demonized. Why is no one talking about making coal cleaner and more efficient, making natural gas same thing, making oil cleaner and more efficient? It just seems like they're just being demonized. Oh, they got to get away from them, and there's there's nothing good about them, which to me seems absurd. That's what our whole society runs on, and it doesn't the- look like any one energy source is going to get us there, no matter what. So why what is anyone doing a real calculus of? Which one is more efficient? Which one should be used in what scenario? And, you know, like a real rational plan instead of just like hysteria. Yeah. I mean, it depends on how much, how interested you are in putting on tinfoil hats. I've got some theories on that. But the the reality is, like, my opinion is that we're going to burn it all. We're not going to stop burning it. It's it's too, uh, I think it was Dr. Nate Hagens that said, right now, there's close to 500 billion energy slaves working on planet Earth. So if you look at a barrel of oil, a barrel of oil has around 25,000 man hours of labor in it. So at 100 bucks a barrel, if you take $100 and divide it by 25,000, your marginal cost of labor is less than a cent. It's, it's ridiculous. Coal is not much different. Coal is a very energy-dense substance. And, and so the reason it's being demonized, I think we can both agree on this, is of the climate change narrative. And so, however, you know, I don't, I don't know how likely the commitments that are being made around the world are actually going to be kept because I live just down the road from a, a, a power plant that used to run on coal. They've just transitioned it over to natural gas. And where's the coal going now? It's not like the mine is being shut down. Um, the mine is retooling and getting ready to ship the coal to China because China is building coal plants. So humans are going to use all the resources that they have access to because the promised high energy density energy is too enticing to not use it. And as you mentioned, the the EVs, the solar panels, the wind turbines, they all need coal, gas, and oil, and even some nuclear to produce or manufacture these products. 
So what is it, uh, what, how do you think the next, let's say, uh, 10 years are going to play out in terms of energy use and preferences on types of energy and all that? What does it look like? I, I don't think it changes. I think that in terms of, of like preference, um, I think we're going to continue to use it wherever we can. I mean, we're already seeing Germany and, and Europe kind of retooling their coal and nuclear uh, fleet because Russia has shut the pipes down. Nobody's talked, this is interesting, but nobody's talking about the two pipelines that just got blown up in the just north of, of Germany there. Um, that just seems to have disappeared in the news. One of the most expensive energy projects on planet Earth, and there's no conversation about it. Energy yeah, there's no cons- conversation about the massive methane burps that came, or sorry, natural gas burps that came out of it, or what the, you know, what that did to the environment. I mean, it's just, yeah, it's just weird. Yeah, I don't think it was as much. I mean, it looked like a lot of gas, but those pipelines were shut down. Like they weren't um, actively being used. Uh, they were there. They were shut down as a result of the war going on in Ukraine. Um, there was definitely methane released, but uh, it wasn't like they were they were actively in use. At least that's my understanding of it. But um, no, I think society continues to to kind of try and grow its energy consumption. And like I said, with the connection to GDP, we're going to continue to attempt to grow the output of oil, gas, coal, and nuclear. I think there's a whole bunch of greenwashing going on um, to try and and make things look better than they are. What, what is think, uh, greenwashing, by the way? What, what's the definition of it? I don't know what it would be defined as on Wikipedia, but basically trying to make something that is not ecologically friendly seem ecologically friendly, essentially. So hmm. it's like... If we look look at Nalgene, for example, the water bottle company, they wanted to take BPA out of their their bottles, right? Because everybody just determined that BPA was a, a hormone disruptor. What nobody talks about is that there's I don't know what the other BPs are, but there's multiple other BP change the last letter on there that are plasticizers that change the chemical composition of plastic, which are equally disruptive to our hormones. So yeah, great. Nalgene has a no BPA in their plastic, but they've got. 15 other chemicals that nobody's thought about looking at that have similar hormone disruptive characteristics to them. So uh, it's just a, it's a PR to try and, you know, you could, you could call the carbon markets a bit of a a greenwashing in a way, because uh, there's this great meme going around the internet right now that shows this gentleman kind of looking forward, it's called carbon tunnel vision. And so the only thing they can see is carbon, but, but below Below the carbon tunnel vision is like ocean dead zones, biodiversity loss, you know, and you just kind of go all, there's like 15 different subjects that are equally important, but we're all just focusing on carbon. And so carbon is not going to solve the problem. Like the carbon emissions that are being created are a symptom of much, much larger problems that need to be solved. Hmm, Okay. Now you have a really good perspective on all this. Um, I don't know what, what would be a good plan forward if you were able to direct you know, uh, the energy research and usage going forward, what would you recommend? Well, interestingly enough, one of the big solutions, and it's not one that people really think about, is is literally putting on your own oxygen mask. Like if you think about us flying in a spaceship or an airplane, we've all become highly dependent upon centralized systems. And so when, we, when we're looking at kind of the solution space going forward, the Solution space is probably not entirely decentralized, but it's at least there's a, there's going to be a huge push towards decentralization, both in our financial systems and our energy systems and in our food systems. And what that looks like is, is it could look like a little bit like a libertarian movement in, in some regards. But, um, I did a, a calculation, like 
you started off our conversation today just before we started hit record there talking about kind of food shortages. And I got this phone call probably 10 years ago from a master's student doing a master's on this on that exact subject. Like, what do we do when the world runs out of food? And I said, well, what are your assumptions? And he said, well, he said, he's like, what do you mean? What are my assumptions? Like, well, are you assuming that we're going to continue, you know, growing lawn, for example? And he said, well, yeah, of course, we're going to have lawns and we're going to have golf courses and we're going to have all these other things. I'm like, do you think that the world is going to continue to perpetuate that element, the lawn, when you've got a billion plus people starving to death? And he's like, well, that's a good point. I don't know. And it's like, well, why don't you start with that assumption? Why don't you start by by challenging that assumption and saying, looking at how much lawn is grown in the U.S. And so I, I actually got off the phone call with him and I said, you know what, I'm going to do this study in 30 minutes. So I quickly did a calculation. It turns out that if every lawn in the U.S., and I'm, I'm, I'm assuming dire consequences here, um, just again, it's one of these thought experiences, uh, experiments that are useful to do by kind of going to the end of the tail, like looking at tail events and saying like, what would happen if in, in this particular black swan, we'll call it. So the black swan is you've got this massive giga famine. Um, people aren't able to get enough food from farms. There's peak oil. We, we're running out of phos- uh, phosphorus. Phosphorus, peak phosphorus is in 2030, for example. And so if we just turn all the lawns in the United States, these are just front and back lawns in people's homes, over to a wheat crop, which we wouldn't do. We would do a far more complex ecosystem than just growing fields of wheat. But wheat's easy to calculate. We can say how many calories we can get per acre off of a um, you know, a typical yield of wheat on an annualized basis. Um, so all of the lawn fertilizer, all of the irrigation, all of the labor that currently goes into managing the lawn would go into growing a giant wheat crop in the U.S. Well, it turns out that just the front lawn, I'm not talking about any of the farms in the United States at all, just the front lawn in, in suburbia and urban areas, essentially, could produce enough calories to feed everybody in the United States a 2,000 calorie diet per day uh, for two years off of one crop. Mm. So what's going to happen is that people are going to start to look at their budgets and say, well, you know, the inflation of food is 10, 15, 20, 30%. I've got to start finding ways to find nutrient dense food for my family that isn't consuming like half of my paycheck. And people will start rationalizing whether or not they should continue to invest in things like lawns, which actually don't do anything. They just they just take money out of your pocket every single week. And what's really interesting about the food system, if you Google the nutrient collapse, um, for the last hundred years, the nutrient density of our food has been declining precipitously, you know, every decade to the point where you can look at pretty much any micro or macronutrient in our food and it's it's lower than it was the decade before. So we're going to start rationalizing things that aren't really serving us, that aren't providing a return on investment, lawn being one of them. And and we could go through like 50 of those types of things. And people will start to to be a bit more rational with, with where they're investing their time and their money. Well, is it people being rational or is it, uh, you know, government saying we're going to do this, that and the other? Like, you know, the World Economic Forum just is saying, all right, we're going to do this, that and the other. And they didn't really seem to care about the consequences. And it looks like they're starting to create a real mess of things. So, yeah, you know, I mean, it's, is, is this coming from people or, you know, like, for instance, just one small thing. There's a lot of properties with HOAs that have rules against that kind of stuff. You know, how are people just supposedly going to magically think of this? You know, it, does it need to be disseminated from top down? Maybe not as an edict or maybe, maybe so. I don't know. But how would that happen? I don't know if it'll happen just for people like 
saying, you know what, this is not working and we're, we're spending money. And, you know, maybe there's uh, what, what would happen is just lawns would go fallow and that would save, you know, X amount of fertilizer and all kinds of other wastes that come with it. Maybe that's the first step in planting wheat. Maybe that won't happen without, uh, you know, a lot of intervention. Definitely possible. But when we look at kind of what has occurred in the past when large black swans or, or big problems have occurred is that people, not everybody, but people start organizing. And, you, you know, you look at the, the Victory Garden in, during World War II, you know, 50% of the food in the U.S. was grown in backyards. So we know that Apollo-style things can occur. You know, the, the question that always gets asked is to come from the top down to the bottom up. And so my approach for the last 14 years has been through education, which has been an attempt at trying to make change from the bottom up. Because when you change from the bottom up, you end up with a, it, it's not always the fastest way to go about doing it. But when you start, there, there's a great gentleman named Daniel Schmackenberger, and he, he's done a podcast recently on the Green Pill podcast called Surviving the Meta Crisis, I think it's called. And he talks about, three different attractors. And so attractor one is basically what the governments aim at. And so the governments want more control. They want, if you think about their function, they're basically set up to create coordination in society. That's their job. And they will always make an argument that they need more control in order to create more coordination. And as problems emerge, they like COVID, for example, they will make the case that they need more and more powers in order to be able to provide the coordination that society needs. Unfortunately, if you look at history, if you continue to allow governments to play a larger and larger role in coordination, and you don't encourage society, you know, at large, like individuals from the bottom up to start taking some responsibility for their life, you end up with tyranny. And there's plenty of examples in history that show this. And this was kind of one of the big innovations that occurred when America was formed was the Constitution and, and the way that liberty was protected and freedom of speech and all the other kind of components that went into the to the charter or the bill that pr protects your freedom. And so attractor one is basically larger in government, more coordination, and eventually it leads to tyranny. Attractor number two is the exact opposite, which kind of describes the libertarian movement. And that would be closely linked in with what permaculture is aiming at, which is essentially some form of anarchy and anarchy, not as in chaos, but people taking responsibility for their lives, people growing their own food, people managing their own energy, uh, people coordinating themselves amongst communities, this concept of decentralization. But without coordination, you end up without any coordination, you end up with a tragedy of the commons. We all depend upon this spaceship we call Earth to continue to to operate. And so some coordination is required, uh, you know, at, at certain scales, let's, we'll call it. And so if you just let attractor number two kind of run its course, you end up with the same level of a different form of chaos. You end up with collapse because you can't operate complex nuclear power plants if you don't have a coordination mechanism. So attractor two doesn't actually solve the problem. And so what Daniel Schmuckenberger is arguing for, and he doesn't have an exact recipe for what this is going to look like, but attractor number three is basically using uh, all the best of attractor number two, which we'll call libertarianism, and attractor number one, which is coordination, and then attractor number three, which is technology, and and it's essentially a mashup of the two, the best of the two, but and throwing out the worst of, of both of them. Um, and I think that that's kind of what some of the Web3 stuff is aiming at right now, which is 
How do we get the best of coordination, but maintain a free market economy and liberty so that we can kind of evolve as a species into a new way of, of coexisting with us, with, with each other. So, um, you know, in your example of the lawns being used for either, uh, you know, growing weeds or my example, letting them go fallow. Um, how would you, how would you do that from a bottom up approach? Like, I don't know if you've thought through that, probably have, but, you know, or if, if there's a better example, what, what would be a good example of a project that you think would be very worthy that would be a bottom up approach? So, I mean, one of, one of the ways is you educate people. You let people understand through podcasts like this, through, uh, through courses, through YouTube channels. I mean, Jordan Peterson said that YouTube and podcasting, it was the next version of the Gutenberg press. Like that's the kind of power that we have now to, to, to translate information across millions of people in a very low cost way. And so I think this, that's like way number one. Way number two is actually what we're att attempting at Fifth World. <clears throat> and so Fifth World is a mashup of permaculture plus regen egg plus Ethereum. So Web3. And so we're actually in the process building a token that has the ability to measure ecosystem services. And when e new ecosystem services are generated, new value is created within the economy. And so we can incentivize land managers, large or small, to do things that are beneficial for the world, for ecology, for the ecosystems, for, so that we all have air and clean water to drink, air to breathe and clean water to drink. And then we, and so now a farmer can be just as productive and, and regenerative as he is productive. So now it's not, you either grow your wheat or you fix an ecosystem, what permaculture can do, and you you mentioned the project in India that you saw, we can grow our food and we can ditch, we can actually turn most of those liabilities that we've talked about at the beginning of this conversation into opportunities. And it's just a different way of looking at how humans coexist with the ecosystems around them. Instead of us always being against our ecosystems or on top of our ecosystems or the command and conquer kind of paradigm, we are one species in a community of species and we all depend upon each other. And we, when we can understand the role that all of those different species, both faunal, so animals or flora, plants, when we understand the roles, the needs, the yields um, that all of these different species have, we can actually create cultivated ecosystems that provide us with food and ecosystem services simultaneously. So it's about creating carrots. Essentially, because if you use if you use government uh, approaches, they typically not yeah. always, but they typically use sticks. And that's yep. that's where the tyranny goes. So we need to self-organize as individuals and as communities to create carrots because it's a far nicer approach to encourage a, a paradigm shift in the way that we organize ourselves as a civilization. And mm -hmm. if we can do that, one of the one of the, prom one of the promises of cryptocurrency is that now, right now, most money is generated through a central mechanism called the Federal Reserve or the Bank of Canada. And what cryptocurrency is saying is we can actually create a distributed ledger that anybody can audit. And the value that gets stored on that ledger can be determined based on any number of things based on just shoot. Like if you've got an imagination, you can come up with an incentive that people are interested in. You can essentially encourage the anthill to move. I understand, you know, crypto has had great promise for a number of years. I've followed the industry since like 2015, but how, you know, governments and all the people that are in place that are, uh, 
you know, taking money out of the government and suckling onto it. I mean, how, how are you going to replace that with crypto? You know, the government is never going to let anything challenge its supremacy. How would this happen? It just seems like a very difficult path. I don't think that, that crypto replaces the government. I, I think mean, even, that... even currency, you know, even let's say in Canada, you know, you have a, a crypto currency that <clears throat> becomes the normal, uh, you know, monetary use for everybody. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I the folks that I work with, talk about how um you know governments are going to move towards central bank digital currencies so they're going to have their own version of crypto uh, it'll be transparent vertically so the governments will basically have all the benefits of programmable money and be able to see everything that you do which really isn't all that awesome Terrible. Uh, but these other cryptos that are emerging there's like 1200 of them they're not all going to survive but they will continue to exist on the periphery and and so in the same way that napster completely transformed how music operates today i see crypto kind of helping to direct the way that that value is generated and and translated um, across distance and between people in the future and we don't it's a complex system so we don't really understand exactly how it's all going to turn out but i think that it's a strong enough force that it is going to have an influence on how we organize ourselves hmm. Okay. So, and I think the quote that that's worth considering here is was one from Buckminster Fuller. You know, in order to change an existing paradigm, you don't struggle and try and change the problem problematic model. You create a new model and make the old one obsolete. And hmm. so, you know, it it our project may or may not you know end up turning out in the end. But there's so many of these projects that are trying to address these root cause issues. Crypto typically is addressing financial problems or, or issues with how the financial system operates. There's opportunities to bring this technology into multiple domains uh, to solve systemic issues in, in, in multiple complex systems. Okay. Rob, what's the best place for people to find out about the efforts you're working on and, and join in? So you can find me at vergepermaculture.ca. And uh, from there, we create updates for Fifth World as well. And people can get involved in permaculture, learn how to use it uh, to grow their own food, manage their own energy requirements, food, energy, water, shelter, waste, essentially, through our programs. Um, I write pretty prolif prolifically on that website. And I've also got a YouTube channel at Verge Permaculture on YouTube. Well, Rob, thank you for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Your ideas and your, you know, your thinking is not just, uh, you know, in one narrow area. It's a lot more general and, and, you know, you're looking at overviews and bigger systems and interplays and things like that. So I think it's very useful how you're looking at everything. So thank you again for being a guest. Yeah. Thanks so much. I look forward to, uh, chatting with you again. Remember, if you're looking for groundbreaking low sugar products, head over to oobly.com and try the world's first iced teas made with sweet proteins the future of sweet, because we all deserve to feel good about healthy sweetness. Use the promo code genius at oobly.com and get 20% off their lemon, peach, or mango yuzu sweet iced teas. Oobly is sweet without sacrifice. Website is oobli.com. Promo code genius, G-E-N-I-U-S. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? 
Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.